You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 64 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. Welcome to the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or tell a friend or colleague about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is Tyler Bird, the host of the podcast Library Figures, a podcast about innovative marketing strategies for libraries. Tyler is also the CEO of Meet Piola, your digital branch web development company. So thanks for joining us today, Tyler. Yeah. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. This is great. Welcome. So we're going to be speaking with Tyler about his company, Meet Piola, uh, digital marketing, and his podcast, Library Figures. But first, let's chat with Tyler. All right. So, Tyler, tell us about your background. You were actually a county councilman. Is that right? <laughs> All right. So I did see this question. I was like, uh, I cringed a little. The, uh, I am actually a sitting council member. The, uh, so every Tuesday, uh, I spend my day in, in the council offices. Oh, wow. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I know it has its days, right? Arguably the hardest job I've ever had. Oh, I can't even imagine. So tell us about your background in web development. Yeah. Um, the When I was a kid, the back in high school, I think 13, 14 years old, um, my parents were divorced and my dad came up for Christmas and he had brought us a computer that he had built. And he was big into web and programming back back at that point in time. And so the deal was uh, we stayed the night with him at a hotel. And he said, hey, here's this computer. You guys can have it and keep it. But in order to have it, you have to build a website by tomorrow morning. And then he showed us the basics of back then. It was pretty much just HTML, unless you're going something like Perl. But um, so I stayed up all night. I booked the worst, most horrendous website you probably have ever seen. The, uh, I think it would melt any computer down at this point. The, uh, and ever since my brother and I have just stuck with it and, and built different sites and different communities and, and then started getting into to web for other companies and agencies and have had an opportunity to work with some pretty cool organizations, everything from uh, pretty big cities on economic development, marketing, and, and getting attracting businesses to universities and rebuilding, you know, five or 10,000 page campus uh, websites to um, big, well-known brands such as like H&M and Body Glove. So uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. That's great. So we, we always find it fascinating how people are drawn towards libraries. So what has drawn you towards libraries since you don't work in a library, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, good question. The uh, a couple of years ago, I want to say maybe about five years ago, our local library actually reached out to me and asked if I would come and speak at their kind of community event where they bring in all the volunteers and all the workers for um, the staff members that are work directly for the county library, but also the, the Bellingham City Library. So there was about 700 people that showed up is what I was told. And they asked me to talk on marketing. And after that, they sent us an RFP and asked us if we would bid on on their marketing project. And we'd actually never, ever, ever done an RFP before. So I didn't even really know what we were getting into or doing. But the more we looked at it, uh, we just kind of got excited about it. And, and we talked to our team. And it's like everyone had a great story about growing up and going to the library or some sort of like affinity 
to the library system. And so the more we thought about it, it was just like, hey, we really want to be in the space and, and helping the library out, our local library out. And, and so we decided to get outside the box and submit the RFP. And and it, just ever since then, we've, we've been doing more and more work in the industry. That's really great because uh, you don't usually um, hear of web developers, you know, usually we're chasing web developers to try to find, you know, the right fit for building our pages. So that's actually kind of refreshing. Yeah. yeah and it's a lot of fun. The, the uh, we, we saw, it's just so interesting because we were able to see so much about what was happening in the industry versus what we've been doing for a long time in the private sector and comparing the two and being able to use what we've learned in the private sector and applying it to the industry and, and seeing the impacts when we look at the data behind it. Uh, and it's just huge. I mean, the things that you can do uh, is really, really beneficial in the long run. And I think it's important to what the library's mission is overall, as well as what the community wants to see from libraries. And so um, it, it's a lot of fun. It's very rewarding for, for everyone involved. That's really nice to hear because uh... – it, it, you kind of when you're in library land, you're preaching to the converted most of the time, and we're going to talk about marketing when we get you know into the next part of the podcast. But um, it's nice to see that that you get it because people who don't usually live in library land don't usually get it as much as people who actually live, breathe, and work in it. So that's really kind yeah. of cool. Yeah, I, I could see that. The uh, hey. I, I could absolutely see that. But with that, and this is something we've been trying to do with our podcast a bit uh, for library figures is um, we really kind of want to start pushing the industry forward into, into thinking down the road 10 or 15 years in a little bit of a different way and looking at what's going to be happening in the future with technology and, and communities and patrons and the private sector and thinking about how libraries will be adapting and competing and what they'll look like in that kind of environment. So when you start thinking about that, I mean, you start thinking about children today. I, I don't know about where you're at, but here our public school systems are all one-to-one -one devices. They got rid of all the lockers and all the kids walk around with their own little notebook or tablet and all their content, all their textbooks, everything is on that. I mean, they don't consume content anymore via a hard copy physical book. And so if that's the generation that's coming up and that's what we're teaching them, uh, what is it that they're going to want from the library in the future? Are they still going to want a physical branch? Or are they still going to want someplace that they can go in and check out a hard copy book? I love hard copies. I don't buy digital books. The uh, We have boxes and boxes of books here that I don't know what to do with. <laughs> um, but my kids, like they, that's that's what they do, right? They, they pick up the tablet or the, the laptop, and that's how they read their books or they do their homework. So it's, it's interesting. That really is kind of cool. I, we're kind of moving towards that here. It depends from district to district what they do. But uh, there are some libraries that uh, – some li schools that uh, – We'll give Chromebooks to every student in the high school. Um, there's even a couple of um, districts that do MacBooks for their for their students. It's a very small district, and uh, others who just say, you know, they create, you know, Google Classroom or something like that, and the kids log on at home. But yeah, I think that's what we're that's what we're moving towards. Yeah, yeah, it'll be sad to see, uh, you know, hard copies kind of dwindle from that standpoint. But I I think the other benefit to that is you you look at the environment and. It, I think it's beneficial from that standpoint, but that's a different conversation entirely. It's a whole different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Worth having. Worth having for sure. Absolutely. So let's take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to talk to Tyler about me, Piola, uh, the Library Figures podcast, which I'm a huge fan of. And if you haven't listened to it, you have to listen to it. Um, and digital marketing tips for libraries. So we'll be back in just a moment. 
Bird. Got it. Can't get that wrong. Okay. Uh, are we back, Chris? Yep, we're back. Where did Chris go? <laughs> I'm here. Can you hear me? <laughs> and we are back. We can hear you from Sachem, the booth. Okay, just was New York. <laughs> it wasn't just you. Uh, we are back with Tyler Bird to talk about the podcast Library Figures and the website development company Meet Piola. Nice. You pronounced that right. Well done. I did. I, I was practicing. <laughs> trust me. There's been uh, speculation and debate internally. Like, how should that be pronounced? <laughs> <laughs> I got it. So one thing that is in question with libraries' web presence now is uh, does it make more sense to go with an app for the library or a mobile responsive web page? I love the fact that you gave me this question, Chris. Thanks. So uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that, Tyler? I mean, I almost want to hear what you're all thinking. Um, oh, when it comes to I'm kind of one-sided. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair enough. Um, I think in order to answer that question, people have to look at like, why do apps exist in the first place, right? And if you figure that out, you go back to say, you know, where, where did we start with an app? And it was really with the launch of the iPhone. All of a sudden, this touchscreen device comes out with this screen that's bigger than anything we've ever seen before on a mobile device. And it allows you to interact with it. But every web design company and development company in the country and the world was like, whoa, what's this? Like, we've been working. I mean, you guys will remember this. Everything back then felt like it was everyone had the exact same Dell monitor. It was square. It was a 1280 by 1280 resolution, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's it. That you designed for that one screen and that one size period. And all of a sudden, you have this little like 300 pixel wide device that your website's supposed to work on. And no one's does. So, I mean, the only way for that to work was for them to launch this app store and say, hey, here's these custom developed programs that will give you all the content you get from a website, but you're gonna get it natively on this device and it's designed to work with this size. And then from there, you, over time, what we've seen is like essentially web design companies are adapting as more and more screen sizes come out. So even you see these people that have 48 inch wide screens, everything's horizontal now. The, I mean, down to like how many different tablet devices do we have? How many different screen sizes do we have? There, there's a combination. You're talking about hundreds of different sizes when it comes to devices. And web and responsive now has the ability to do all of that. And so we're no longer restricted by size because we've learned how to do that. The only other advantages that apps had back in the day was that they could use the organic or the, the native features of a phone. So upload a, a picture, right? You take a picture, how do you upload it to an app or a site? You had to have an app to do that. Most of that stuff we can do now. I mean, as of now, we can store local content on your device. So when you're offline, you can still access it. Google just announced that they're going to allow progressive web apps into the app store so people can download it. With Piola, we're able to determine if you're on a phone or a mobile device and then prompt you to save that and bookmark it. And it saves it as an icon on your home screen so people can go straight back to the site at any point in time. We can do push notifications just like an app does. So the question becomes, why would you want to pay to develop an app for every single smartphone that's out there and we're talking about you you're going to have to have one for the ipad you're going to have one for the iphone the, those will be slightly different but you might have one app for both the you're going to have one for an android you're going to have one for a windows phone i mean are you going to design for the new blackberry i, I thought the company was dead <laughs> but apparently it's trying to come back so uh, it, and then you're going to have your website too i mean five different teams developing all of those separately because they have to be developed separately 
or have one that works on everything. So honestly, I don't see the point of apps in the future. I, I think over time that as we pick up the last few remaining pieces to this, you'll see that the web and the websites do pretty much everything across every device. And we're going to maintain one device across the board and, and that will be the convenient way to get it done. Well, it's funny too, but Bob, you would know more than anybody else. Once you create an app, you kind of marry to it and you're kind of dragged along when it's new in iOS or a new Android update. And now, you know, especially with Apple, they have all those crazy requirements that they have, you know, when they, when they upgrade an, an iOS. Um, so you're kind of like, you're, you're married to developing this app, you know, in perpetuity and when does it end? You know, as opposed to a website where you're going to up do updates to it for content, and you may do a refresh, or maybe there's a new version of you know a particular piece of software that that runs with it. I mean, I'm a WordPress guy, so I would go with like a WordPress thing. But obviously, you you guys are more sophisticated than I am. But the whole well, idea to, of yeah, I have to agree with Tyler because and Chris exactly what you said. You know, five years ago, more than that, six years ago, like the times were it was all uh, you know develop an app, develop an app, develop an app. And um, truth be told, we, you know, we got into it. And the biggest thing that I've known after being involved with an application, you know, development company for the last five or six years is that people don't keep up with it. You know, so it's just another thing that the library or that whomever has to support. Um, they don't have a dedicated person to do it. So the database links are outdated. The content's outdated. The logos are outdated. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the only time you look at it is when somebody walks up to complain about it. And that's the worst time, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's and that's the worst time because then you're like, well, this should be working. But wait a second. You know what? We had an update uh, three weeks ago, and we went to SSL, and nobody told the web develop the, the app developers. So uh, none of the hooks work. None of the, none of the requests work. You know, And, and honestly, with, with WordPress or, or all the custom stuff, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, how, how's that going to scale onto other stuff, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you all, but we have pretty much an Alexa device in almost every room. I, I knew it was bad when my, my youngest son, he's nine, he went to bed the other night and he's like, good night, Alexa. And she's like, good night, Jacob. I was like, oh, man, that, that, oh. now we have a problem. Now we have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> how does content scale into that? Like, when we start getting into voice, I mean, it's the fastest growing market segment when it comes to content and the growth of these smart speakers. I mean, it's just unprecedented and 26% year over year, they expect that the next 10 years or so to continue. I mean, what happens there? What happens with big big screen devices and the digital displays and libraries? Why isn't that all coming from one site, one source, one place versus everything having to have its own app and its own maintenance team or upkeep? And it just becomes really difficult over time if we keep going in, in that direction of having things separate for everything. Right. Sure. So uh, keeping in mind, you know, the customer service end of what libraries do, uh, how do you know, how can libraries work to integrate that artificial intelligence with bots to answer simple questions in, in uh, a web environment? Like we aren't replacing librarians or staff. It just takes that initial engagement on a website for to, for it to be more responsive, kind of like, you know, those text chat bots, those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. You're, you're not replacing any librarians and you're, you're not replacing any staff. I, I think you, you would be hard pressed to be able to show me a site where you have an active librarian staffed answering questions full time. I know there's a couple that have chats on their sites, but they're also not super active and that person's doing other stuff behind the scenes. So you don't have someone there. But 
I also think that's a hallmark of what libraries are. I mean, tell me a library that you've walked into a physical branch that you've ever been into where a librarian isn't there and available to answer your questions and help you out or find that piece of content or do your homework. Right. I mean, it's something that we've grown to know is it's, it's just a piece of the library. And so I think it's nice to be able to look at it and think about digital in a way that you say, Hey, how do we bring that piece of what libraries are to the online experience? And I think bots and artificial intelligence will help us get there in the future. I mean, we have bots that are able to answer questions and help you point you into the right direction when it comes to FAQs, just to kind of get the low end questions out of the way so that you're not having to repeat those answers repeated or multiple times. And it helps that online experience. But I think that's another place where you start looking down the road and saying, what are the, what's technology look like? What, and what are we needing in the future? And thinking back to like Alexa and these devices, if we created a bot today that could work on your website and answer questions just like a real person and direct people and answer questions from your Facebook, just like a real person, and it understands the questions and the answers, that's not a far leap to having Alexa and having a vocal device where I can say, hey, Alexa, ask my library when the next event is or ask my library what's the newest Dean Koontz book. And having it tell me that or give me a source for this information and having it tell me that. And so I think if you start today and we start looking at how that's going to evolve over the next five or 10 years, that we'll be able to take really great advantage of that in the future and provide that experience to consumers that they really want um, in the long run. And, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned Alexa um, because a really good friend of ours is a fellow podcaster, Chris Kratz from the Long Island History Project and, and the Radio Tower. Um, he has through, I believe he uses Libsyn as his uh, audio hoster. Libsyn now has integration with Alexa. So you could say, Alexa, play the Long Island uh, History Project podcast, and Alexa will play it. Um, I, we haven't delved into that yet, and I don't know if Blueberry has that integration. They probably do. I just haven't had a chance to look at it. But think about even in terms of our daily life now for something as innocuous as listening to a podcast. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I use the morning briefing every morning. Get up, grab my coffee. Alexa, play the news. I'm surprised it's not playing the news over here, by the way. <laughs> uh, and it, it rolls through, a, you know, it's an assortment of like there's some marketing stuff, there's stuff on economics, global news, that kind of stuff. But why doesn't it give me a list of like here's the five events happening at your library today based on what it knows I'm interested in, or here's the newest announcement from the branch that's down the road from you, and, and kind of let me know what's happening in my community right here and with my library at the same time, or new popular book that just arrived we think you might like. I mean, that would be the perfect type of content to put into something that I'm using every single day anyway. And, and it would be a great way to just continue to promote the services and the value libraries have to offer. That's right. That's a good insight too. I mean, we're looking at now, right? I mean, Chris, wouldn't it be neat to just know what's on hold for you when it's available for pickup? That would be wonderful. And that's, you know, libraries are, uh, Tyler, do you agree? Libraries are usually like a decade or so behind technology. So. <laughs> yeah, I might go a little further. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's maybe 17 years. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, but, maybe. Um, sorry, but it's a great idea. And, you know, the only thing I've, and we've talked about this uh, amongst ourselves, right? And we hear, well, I don't want that thing recording me. You know, we hear all that. So, I mean, do you have any insight on, on that? Like how to alleviate those, you know, types of fears? The uh, the big bad privacy question, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Here's my opinion on privacy. If you say, I don't want that thing recording me, that probably means that you don't own it. Uh, 
Right. So then it's not going to record you. But if you own it, then that's probably not a concern for you. And so it's the same thing as newsletters uh, and having like newsletters that you're sending out to people where it's specific content based on their specific interests versus generic content. If I give you the information and I tell you, hey, this is the kind of content that I'm interested in and these are the type of events I'm interested in, I'm expecting you to, to use that information your experience. Right. And I'm choosing to give you that knowing that you have access to that information about me. Uh, that's not a privacy issue. That's just a customer service issue. Privacy right. is if I give you all this information or you loan me a device that records without telling me, or I give you information and you share it with people that I didn't know we're going to have access to it without telling me, right? Yeah. That's where privacy comes into play when it comes to digital. But this other part, I mean, that's just customer service and it's being involved and in knowing what the trends are and what consumers and patrons want. I think that's the big question is like, what do patrons want from libraries versus where we're at right now, which is a lot, you know, librarians talking to librarians about what they, what they think patrons want or what a lot of times what the librarians want. And so sometimes we get lost in that translation or in that transition from that standpoint to, to getting the community what they're looking for. Yeah. You know what? And Chris, we just got back from computers and libraries, right? Mm -hmm. And what we saw was a bunch of our colleagues talking about, you know, a bunch of our other colleagues and things that they were doing and whatnot. And it'd be great to have like a patron conference where they came out and said what they'd like to see, right? <laughs> so that might be next. I'm almost afraid yeah. to ask that. Well, yeah, <laughs> for sure. So how do libraries collect data and receive feedback, either with a web environment or in-house? Yeah, um, I think this goes back a little bit to the privacy question. So I, I'd give you a scenario. Um, how many events, do you know how many events your library has every, say, once a month or? A lot. No. Uh, yeah, that's usually the question, right? Yeah. Um, I think it was Angela uh, on my uh, on Library Figures, our first episode, where she said they had 3,000 a month. And I was Yeah, that was insane. Yeah, the uh, that that's a ton. Um, I still can't wrap my head around that. Um, so you look at that, right? And you think about three thousand events. Like, how can you possibly choose three thousand events that are relevant to the community and that they're going to want that will get good engagement and participation and people will enjoy? And it's beneficial for everyone. I think the easy question of that is when people register, you ask them to register for the event, so you know that they're coming. And then after the event, why aren't we sending them a quick survey and just say? Hey, did you like this event? Did you enjoy the speaker? Is there something we could do better? Would you share it with a friend? And depending on the feedback you get, you use that to determine whether you have that same event in the future, whether you bring that speaker back for that same event in the future, or whether you go in a different direction and use a different category of, of events. And so just asking people and allowing them to give you the data points back and but knowing when and what to ask them, I think is the big key. And so the same thing goes when content, but that kind of gets into an entirely separate bucket because libraries are so fragmented. You have so many different service providers that are all under their own brand. They're all under their own domain names that you can't track across those. So you don't get a holistic picture. But I think that's the other part that you have to start looking at is how are people interacting with the content and the services you have? And what are the things that they want to get from that? And then based on those goals, being pretty intentional about setting up and tracking them to improve how they go about them and what the outcomes are. That's, and it is kind of hard to figure that out because, like you said, we're, not only are we dealing with different vendors and different things like that, but just in-house, if we're just if we wanted to evaluate all of our tech classes, we'd have to have. I mean, just think about it in terms of having a questionnaire for each one, and you can kind of make it, I guess, a little generic, 
but if you, the more generic you make it, the less detailed data you're going to get from it. Yeah. I have a, an opinion about this. Every time we do a stakeholder survey and we reach out to patrons and ask them, like, did you know that the library offered this service? It doesn't matter what library we've done that for. We get the same answer. And it's always like, oh, I didn't know my library had that. I didn't know that was available. Um, you might be unique over there and have patrons that know about all your services, but I'd be really, really surprised. Uh, so the question, like, we started thinking about that in the context of why is that the case? And honestly, I think it's that same problem where because libraries, when it comes to a digital experience, and that's usually what patrons fail to understand is the digital services the library has to offer. It's because every one of those are under a different brand and they're under a different domain name under a different provider somewhere. And so when you ask someone, I was at an event and I said, hey, where do you get your, your audiobooks? Someone says Amazon, someone says Audible, someone else says, you know, I get it from uh, Libby. And I was like, oh, Libby. So not your local library. You, you didn't get it from your library. You got it from Libby. And that's what we're teaching patrons. We're not teaching them that the library offers that service. We're teaching them that that vendor and that brand offers that service. And that's where they're, they're remembering. It. And that's the message that they're spreading. They're telling people, go get your Libby app, right? They're not saying go get the library app or go get your audiobook or your ebook from the library. And so until we can fix that and bring everything together in one place under the library's name, under the library's brand, I think we'll continue to see that problem exist too. And, and that's a little frustrating from a marketing standpoint and a data standpoint. Chris, think of overdrive. Oh yeah. I was just, and exactly it, right. it was funny cause I heard, I heard Tyler's podcast episode about this and you used Macy's as an example. I think it was Macy's or JC or something like that. Yeah. Um, with the shirt that you had bought and yep. versus something that is branded for that store. Um, and all I kept thinking was, this is, I mean, I can't even imagine what the user agreement says with Overdrive and Libby and, and, and how <laughs> it's layered that, you know, that Overdrive and Libby have to have that, you know, that name, you know, that branding front and center versus, you know, being like the Sachin Public Library's ebook collection or, you know, where it's not branded for the library primarily. Um, I don't know necessarily, and I'm not an attorney, so I can't say, but I don't know what the advantage is. Um, for Libby or Overdrive with marketing to a patron because the patron is kind of a captive audience. They're in that, that cage anyway, living within the confines of you know whatever library system you're in or whatever library district you're in. So I don't understand what the logic is, and there probably is a logic, I don't know, to, to saying that it's a Libby product versus a, even if it's an SC, a Suffolk Cooperative Library System product, which then could give credit to the individual you know library. Um, but it's such a when, – when I heard you say that on your podcast, again, another one of those moments where I'm screaming at the radio or screaming at my phone <laughs> saying, yes, yes. You know, so how, how do we – I don't know how we fix this, but it's, it's – again, it's back to branding. And it's something that libraries either do really, really well or they don't do it much at all. And, and if you're confined to, like, let's say – we're just picking on Libby and Overdrive because that's the thing that we push the most. Isn't that popular? Um, <laughs> You know, how do we how do we fix that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that the only way to fix that is right now the norm is that it's okay, that that's acceptable when it comes to vendors and when you choose them. And so everyone's on that same place. And if you're going to say that as a customer that that's an acceptable solution to you, then as a 
for-profit business, I'm going to step up and jump up and down and cheer and scream, yes, I love you for that because you're going to promote my brand and help me grow faster than I could otherwise, right? Yeah. The, uh, that's an unprecedented like competitive advantage for growth for a private company. If every customer that uses my system uses it under my name and my brand, I mean, that's fantastic. So until a library starts saying, hey, that's not okay, we need the content and it has to show up within what our app or our you know, Alexa app or device or our website or our Facebook page, and it has to be under our brand entirely and our domain name, um, then it will continue to be a problem for us. And so I think that we have to kind of start making that stand a little bit saying, this is what we expect. But I also think that libraries, in order to get there, have to stop thinking about digital as a website. I think that you have to stop thinking of it as like a marketing channel to get in front of patrons. And I think you have to start thinking about it instead as a traditional library branch and think about what you offer in that physical library branch and what patrons have come used to or become used to in that physical branch and how that translates to a digital branch. Because the website is a branch for everyone in your community that's online that they can access anywhere and everywhere. And that's where they're going for content when it comes to any kind of digital format. And that's why we're losing them to Amazon and Audible. And so if that's the case and you start thinking about that, then you also have to consider, you know, in 2016, the average physical library branch cost $13 million to build in the United States. That was building it, right? That's not maintaining it. That's not staffing it. That's not putting books into it, the electrical bill or insurance or anything else ongoing. That's the cost of construction and development and architecture. The average website, when we talk to somebody, they spend a thousand dollars on it. Even the big guys only spend, you know, two hundred fifty thousand to get part of the way that having the content integrated into their site. So until we start thinking about it as not a website but an actual branch where we're going to have a great experience for patrons, I don't know that we can get there because we won't be willing to make the investment that's necessary to do it. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, the, and you're right. You know, because look, librarians know library stuff. You know, and it's rare to get librarians. It's not as rare as it used to be, but you know, it it's still kind of rare to get a librarian that's really tech savvy, can do web development, or even app. Dare I say, app development, or you know, or has the ability to work with the tech that's there. It's getting better with the young younger generation of librarians coming up, but it's still not where I think it needs to be. Um, so you know, it it's kind of a uh, it's one of those things where. You know, libraries are still always playing catch up. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I, I do think you're right, though, Chris. I see a lot, especially maybe it's just because the podcast and we're we're finding people that have just really forward thinking in the space about it, um, which is pretty cool. But we are seeing a lot more of that than we were two, three years ago. Uh, people are coming forward and saying, "I want to use data. I want to know what the patron thinks. I want to know what type of content that they have. I want to know where they want that content, and I want to be able to give it to them there and do it in a better way and more and increase our engagement." So I'm kind of excited to see that trend starting to take place. In in the industry, in the space. Could you imagine a podcast where it's somebody who <laughs> hates technology and wants to talk about how they want to go back to the card catalog and have to halfway through a podcast, they start shushing the guest? And We've worked for enough of those people, haven't we, Chris? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be, that would be kind of funny. It's like the angry you, library. You're dead on because what's the first thing that, that happens? Oh, you guys hear me? I hear you. Mm-hmm. Chris is... Am I Chris is in and out. It must be that Sachem Library Wi-Fi. Oh, it's, it's the new Mac. <laughs> it's the new Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a new port with that that we, we don't have yet? 
Yeah, and you're USB-C to something and rather? Yeah. Yeah, it's just because I'm in this room. We need to get a uh, access point in here. Yeah, you got to get on uh, your tech guy, right? Yeah, exactly. He says he's, um, I'm on the list. <laughs> Which list is so that? Tyler's right on target. If, if we were to sit down with a bunch of, you know, traditional library folks and develop a website, the first thing we would do, right, is is sketch something out. And the first thing they would do is come up with a bunch of links to hand us to other people's services. And, you know, it would be Overdrive. It would be all these other things, Libyan, all these other apps. And as soon as, in, in most cases, as soon as they're on the website, they're on their library website, they're kind of comfortable. They click on Overdrive or something else, and they're pretty much gone. You know, even if they start from the catalog, they're pretty much gone after they go to one of these other vendors, you know? Yeah. And what we need is, right, Tyler, what we need is a killer discovery layer that says content A, content B, content all the way to Z, wrap it up and present it to the patron. But that, that's that got to be, you know, you have to have some heavy hitters, right, to get that. I think, you know, you do. And I think that that's fair. I mean, when you look at Seattle or um, a number of the other big libraries and you go actually pull their RFPs and we've done that because it's all public disclosure, right? Um, You can see what they're spending and how long it's taking them. And, you know, they're spending a quarter million dollars and taking almost two years to build sites that they have some of the discovery layer in it, but they don't have any of the interaction past that. And so, I mean, they're still great sites, but, and then they have all the management upkeep moving forward for them. Um, I think it's a good direction and I think it's great to see that I'm hoping, but I also wonder how you roll that out to more libraries. I mean, it, it is a selfish plug. I mean, it is what we're doing for, with Piola. Our idea is like, we want to build a $13 million digital library branch that we can just license and everyone gets access to all the coolest, newest stuff all in one place without having to pay that fee. Cause you're essentially crowdsourcing one platform across all the libraries right. to get there. Um, but I mean, that's like we've we've got to get there one way or another. It, it just needs to happen because it's so frustrating as a patron to have to go through that experience. I mean, if there's four places to check out a book and I checked one out, do I have to remember which one of the places I went to to check it out or where I saw that specific piece of content? It, yeah. it, I mean, it's ah. Well, and the other killer part of it is it's device specific. So if you come in with a, a paperwhite or you come in with an iPhone or you come with an Android, like everybody's. You know, they're messed, they're messed up because it's completely different. Yeah. And what happens with, you know, this is my real big concern is if we don't figure this out sooner than later, what happens in three years when Amazon is literally delivering physical books to people within two or three hours of them checking out? I mean, the the beauty of Amazon is I do most of my Christmas shopping there now. I mean, it's got my address for my office and my home. It's got all my credit card information. I just log on, do a quick search. It takes me one search. I find the item on the first page and I click buy and it shows up a day or two later. If I can do that and it shows up two hours and I don't have to drive to the store or the library anymore, how do we compete with that? That that makes it really hard. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. So switching gears for a sec. Um, let's talk about your podcast, Library Figures. I'm a huge oh, yeah. fan, like I said before, because um, I like the focus on marketing. Um, so how did you come up with the idea? And this is always something interesting when we talk to podcasters to talk about where did that where did that spark come from? Where did that idea come from? Yeah, sure. So I, I mentioned that I got invited to come and speak at our local uh, conference for our local library. Um, so that was actually for a marketing project. And so once we started doing marketing for them, we applied some of these principles we were doing for private companies and it, they crushed it. I mean, it, we, it was a one year contract, but the first three months was just research because we hadn't done anything for libraries before. So we had nine months to implement the campaign um, and it just did overwhelmingly well. I mean, they had 26% better single month uh, 
than any time in history for uh, new card signups, uh, which just one. I mean, we had some services where we were up four or five hundred percent. It was it was unreal. And then they ended up winning the John Cotton Dana Award. We had submitted them for um, for that same campaign. And when we looked at it, it was a matter of like, hey, this isn't crazy stuff we're doing. This is just the average kind of thing that we do in the private sector. And why is it having such a huge impact when it comes to libraries? And so the more we started looking at the, the more I started thinking like, hey, you know, libraries need more help here because they're they're not they're not up to like current trends and strategies for what's happening. And so we started going to conferences and speaking at conferences, and it dawned on me the reason why. Every time we get invited to go speak at a conference, they tell us the same thing. Like, hey, this conference is for librarians and you're a private company, so we'd love to have you speak, but you have to bring a librarian that's gonna stand up there with you um, if you're gonna speak. And I'm like, okay. So we'll bring our, our clients with us and they'll get up there with us. But what's occurred to me is that the reason that libraries are so far behind in marketing is because they want to hear from each other versus going outside of to the private sector or other places that are pushing the limits and doing new things. And so when we looked at the podcast, that was kind of the idea about it. It's like, I think that a lot of librarians aren't going to trust me as a marketer and a private company in the context to wanting to listen to what my feedback is because I'm not a part of the industry. and Maybe I don't know what you know um, or what you're trying to achieve. And so we wanted to start changing that paradigm and educating and helping libraries engage the communities better and use these cool new trends that we're seeing in the private sector. And the thought process was, well, there's got to be people in the industry that are doing it. So let's, let's go find those really cool people doing these really rad things. And let's have them talk about it because they're in the industry and they're doing it. And this is what we want librarians to, to learn and do. And so it'll be the best way to help move the industry in that direction. And so that's kind of where the premise came from. Um, long story short, but uh, it, I think it's having a good impact. I mean, we're getting a, a lot of awesome feedback from it. And uh, we're meeting some amazing people. So I've been pretty excited. And what's really cool, too, is they're people from library land. So they're not just uh, people who, um, you know, who are in the industry who are kind of talking about it. You know, it's, it's people who are with their boots on the ground, like the director up in Albany uh, talking yeah. about, you know, what he's doing. Um, and we're violating his rule right now of podcast being no more than 30 minutes, but oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry yeah. if people get bored. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's nice that you actually have and I'm assuming some of them are clients, some of them are not clients, but you know, it's nice to get that input from inside, being an outsider, talking to people who are in the inside, who have that same mindset that you have with regard to marketing too. Yeah, I think it's fun. I am, I am pulling a, you know, a little bait and switch. I will be honest to all your listeners. I mean, we are sprinkling in the, the private agency or the private company um, marketer every, you know, every couple episodes or so, just so we can bring a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, but it, we're trying to get as many like real thought leaders in the industry talking and, and on the show as possible. So if you know someone, let me know, because uh, I mean, we're always on the hunt for great people doing really cool stuff. And I, I can't wait to learn more. It's really exciting. Thanks. Very exciting. So social media is such a big part of what we do now in libraries to get the word out. So what is your take on that special formula for posting and what platforms do you feel are most successful because different platforms reach different groups, right? They do. Uh, okay. I don't know how Twitter still exists. I got to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, more libraries use it than anyone else. Um, I, I, as far as I can tell the, but I, 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 that one's pointless to me. The, uh, it's a means to an end, I guess. But one day when they figure out 
it's not making money still, maybe they'll shut it down. Um, you know, honestly, social media scares me a little when it comes to marketing. It's a great tool for getting in front of people. But coming up in you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, when Facebook was starting to get really rolling in the private sector, uh, the push was like build pages with as many followers as possible because your engagement was fantastic. They all saw everything that you posted. I mean, you were able to really push the message out and get it out there. But every few months, I mean, Facebook pulls the reins back and they pull the reins back and they use it, use it as a, a method for increasing revenue on paid posting and, and sponsored posts, or they use it as a way um, that they're changing it for a different service type or maybe a regulation. But we keep losing that engagement. So we've made huge investments into building these audiences via different social profiles. And over time, we're not engaging with them as much as we used to. And I think that's a, a long-term problem that, that I'm concerned with. And so I'd rather have people on that that I'm pushing back to my newsletter and communicating with them via email or getting them to sign up for a push notification where I can actually push a, a notification to their laptop or their phone or even text message. I mean, that's gotten great return and great data behind it from an engagement standpoint than I would investing too heavily in social media. So I know that's a little off of the question. I will tell you when it does come to social media, we're seeing huge gains in that space. Every library that we do a marketing campaign for, we do it uh, where we also have sponsored posts that are really targeted on Facebook. And that drives a ton of response and a ton of just engagement, increased sign up and circulations across the board for whatever the services. That is nice. Um, but special formula when it comes to that, I think is consistency and it's good content. What do the patrons want? Stop looking at what you want as a library and start looking at what your patrons want. 90% what patrons want, 10% what you want to communicate. If you can do that and you can do it consistently, it, then the people who want the information from that platform, you on that platform, they're going to get what they want. You'll have good engagement from that for as long as the platform exists. And I think that's you make a good point saying what does a patron want to see, you know, on social media versus what the library is pushing out. So, you know, oh, we're having a program on how to build widgets on Saturday. Come blah, blah, blah. Versus do you want to know how to make widgets? You know, it, it's almost it, it's like marketing 101 kind of, you know, start with why and all that other stuff. Uh, so you have to kind of, you know think outside the box and, and figure out what formula works for your library because every community is going to be different. If you're pounding social media with four, five, six posts a day, you're going to turn people off maybe in, your, in one community where other communities are like, wow, this is great. I want to hear more. And some people are more Twitter-centric versus Facebook uh, versus Instagram. Um, and again, you're reaching different age groups. Usually I think Facebook now is for the 40-plus the set and Instagram is for the the teen to late twenties, and then Twitter is kind of like I don't even know where Twitter falls anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no man's land. You know, Nobody yeah. knows. That's the problem. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. I mean, there's two kind of different examples that kind of strike me because they're so different, entirely opposite. But we had a great guest on the show, and she I thought had a phenomenal strategy because she was working for a university, a library at a university, and she actually brought in students and said, "Hey, I want you to curate content." that you like that helps us. I mean, here's the brand guide. Don't go outside the brand guide and do things that would hurt the brand, but post things that you would like and that you would be, that you enjoy. And so they did that and they saw phenomenal results because they had someone that understood the audience that was a part of that target demographic that they were trying to talk to 
finding content that was intriguing to them and pushing it out. And so when they had things that they wanted to communicate, they had really great responses. They had awesome growth in their social profiles and their followings and engagement in that content, which meant that the important content they needed to communicate was seen at a higher rate and got better engagement too. And so I thought that approach was, was phenomenal. The flip side of that was I'm in a, a bunch of library marketing groups on, on Facebook and LinkedIn, and someone had posted like an entirely different situation. And it was essentially, I was trying to get outside the box with my social postings and engage and give community what they wanted. And we were seeing a good response. But my director told me that I couldn't post anything that wasn't either on our blog or an event that was on our page. And I had to stick to those two things. And she was seeing that essentially all of that work and all of that, that growth that they'd seen was just dropping off at an incredibly fast rate and they were losing it. And it's going back to like, do you give them what you want? to give them or do you give them what they to have? And I think we, we have to give people, we have to ask them what they want and we have to give them what they want to have. That makes a lot of sense too, uh, because you, right. You, you gotta make, you gotta play to your audience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well said. I like that. <laughs> so <laughs> continuing with the marketing end, uh, one of the hardest things that library land does, um, and we've talked about it so many times on the podcast is we're really good at reaching people who get, who come into the library, you know, interact with the library, but it's hard to get people who don't know about the library and what we offer and, and to get them in. Um, so social media is only one part, but in one of your episodes with that marketer formerly from iHeartRadio, you talked about getting that attention from the people who don't come in because we're so good at reaching the people who are in because we have posters and newsletters and they already read the newsletter and they already are the converted. How do we bring the... How do we convert the people who don't know, don't care, don't understand, or are indifferent? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I love this question. Um, this was kind of a, a little bit of an epiphany for us with that first contract with our, our local library. Because we went in and we asked them, you know, what do we, what do you want to do? What is it you want to accomplish? And, and we got the message that we want to serve the underserved. We need to get more of the underserved into the library and using it. And so we asked them, you know, what, who's the underserved? I mean, what, what does that mean to you? And it, it's the same thing that most of us think about, at least from like a government side. That if I put my government hat on, and the underserved <laughs> is you know the less fortunate that maybe they haven't had access to that education, or maybe unfortunately they've lost a job and they're living on the street or something in that kind of context. And, and that's a huge mission for libraries. But what we did is we went back and we took a step back and said, okay, we get that. Let's go do a, a survey and actually talk to everybody right, that's in the community and see you know, what it is that they want and who's using the space. And so we did the survey and we sent it out. We called, we, we got 100,000 phone numbers and we did a robo dialer with the survey to all the phone numbers. We did it through Google surveys and some online systems and then we mashed all the data together. And what we found was that really the underserved when it came to libraries wasn't the traditional underserved that libraries, at least ours, had put such a huge emphasis on that over so many years that we were doing a really great job servicing that group of people. But if we look at who was underserved and not using the library or in that context, it was this new group of millennials and, and young parents. And what they were saying is that they had a huge affinity. They loved the library. They really wanted to use the services. They didn't know about the services that we had told them about, but none of them were actually library card holders or using the library. And so that's when we stepped back and said, well, we need to change the campaign a little bit in the next year or two and target that group of people and get them in and using the site. And 
how do we do that and where are they at? And I'll tell you, after we're doing marketing campaigns the, the last four or five years now for several different libraries, the thing that we see constantly be beneficial is not doing the same thing. And so if you're just doing posters and that every year you do posters and you put them on the same boards, you're talking to the exact same people. If every day you just do your Facebook page and it's only your page, you're talking to the exact same people. What will work for you is go do radio ads for six months and talk to an entirely new demographic that you've never been in front of before. And then pull back, do Facebook sponsored posts and pick an audience and talk to them for two or three months. Come back, go do Instagram, hard campaign for two or three months. Go to your local uh, movie theater and just do one of those ad reels before the movies. That was this up until we did the marketing campaign for them. That was the biggest driver. They had done it the year before and they had broken. It was the only other time that they'd broken a record in, in recent history for cardholder signups was at the movie theater talking to people sitting there because it was an entirely new market. It was an entirely different space. And those people weren't aware of the library or the services. And it's a great way to communicate what you're doing and get front of a new audience that's not listening to you and have a big impact on circulation and cardholdership. Makes a lot of sense. It does because you want to be able to get the word out there to as many people as possible. So with those robocalls, what percentage of them actually answered the questions? I'm always curious to, to, to hear that end of it. Yeah, um, we were actually, we had gone into that planning to do uh, the digital and the robocalls at the same time for a little bit of a different reason, but it actually worked out a lot better than we ever would have thought. So I can't tell you, I mean, that was four or five years ago. I don't remember exactly the percentage that, that opened it, but what I do remember is that we had roughly the exact same number of people that took the online survey as answered the robocalls. But what was really interesting to us was the difference in demographic between the two. And so who took the online survey was all of our younger millennials, Gen X, uh, the, uh, the are kind of techie influencers, people who've grown up with technology and are using it, right? The uh, But a very small percentage of those people were our older, our baby boomer demographic or older. But the flip side was it was, it was just as apparent. I mean the data was almost exactly opposite in which the people who picked up the phone and answered the survey on the phone, we got hardly any millennials or anyone, any kind of youth. Um, it was almost entirely baby boomers or older. And so there was just this great line, this perfect divide between the two segments and how, what technology to them they like to use and getting those combined into one kind of holistic picture. So I, I really appreciated that part of the view. I, I thought it was, it was worthwhile from that perspective. I know it didn't answer your question, but hopefully they'll provide a little. Well, no, it, it brings up a good point because I mean, with the robocalls, were you calling more landline phones? Were you calling more cell phones? I mean, that that's going to probably skew your, uh, your stats a little bit, right? Yeah, um, it, it definitely does. And so you look at, I mean, you get pulled out of something like the, uh, the, the do not call list. So, so many phone numbers are on that. And with the cell phones, you can get those numbers if they've been registered someplace, but every landline, it, when you pay for a landline, it goes in the phone book unless you pay extra to not have it. So I'm going to say that it was predominantly, it was going to be landline phones. There was going to be a percentage of those that were mobile, but not as high a percentage. That's changing because some of the laws are changing around that where those are getting registered. We have access to them a little bit better now than what we did in the past. Um, 
so but it's still i think over time we see that be less effective than anything else what i'm really interested in actually is uh text i mean we're seeing phenomenal returns when it comes to like random text surveys so if you could send out a question to someone via text and have a reply your engagement is huge and what i'd love to see is like that going back to that news brief why doesn't the news brief ask ask me a question every day like what would you like what kind of event would you like to see at your library and have me answer and then crowdsource all that data into what events you list next or come up with next. I mean, having that two-way interaction would be fantastic. Definitely. And think about the data that you would get from that to help, for, for not for negative reasons, but for positive reasons to help enhance what you're doing at the library too. Yeah. And then what's your attendance look like? What does the attendance look like? Okay. So that actually makes me wonder about something else. Um, I know we're probably short on time, but when I think about library events, to me, they serve a purpose. They're a means to an end. So the one thing about them is that they were used to drive people into a, a branch. And while they were there, the hope is that they check out a book and we increase circulation. And the second is that it flows into our mission as a library, spreading knowledge and spreading wealth, the, uh, or the wealth of knowledge. And so if we look at those and we say we want to accomplish those two things or the benefit of those two things, why don't we do online events? Why aren't we as libraries showcasing upcoming authors and you know new book launches via a video stream or a Google Hangout like this one where anyone in our community can access it, whether they're at work or come back and view it later or anyplace else? If we can use that to get them to our page and once they're on the page, hopefully show them other books and things that they might be interested in. That will increase our circulation. And if we can use that to distribute information, that will help us accomplish our goal of you know, free information to the community and that engagement too. So I'd be curious to see libraries kind of move in that direction as well. But, but it's I got also, all kinds of stuff I'm thinking, sorry. But that's okay. But that's also content too. So that's content that can be curated. It could be downloaded and made you know, available you know, as part of a collection, a digital collection. And it's something that lives in perpetuity up on Facebook. If you're doing yep. like a Facebook Live, because we do our technology meeting and we stream it. So people, if they miss the meeting, you know, it's always fun to see the residual um, post recording uh, views to see what, what you're reaching. So um, I, I totally get it. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's great SEO. I mean, once that link's out there and that content's there, it's there forever as long as you don't delete it. And so if that's the case, leave it there. Put the recording up. Let people who are looking for it or, or saw something that got shared, you know, five months ago and they click on the link and come back to the page. Let them come back to that page and view that recording. And while they're there, show them three or four other you know, upcoming events at your library that are under the exact same topic or maybe the exact same event that they can participate in live. I mean, use that as a tool to engage the community because you know it's out there. So don't delete it. Don't get rid of that. That's, that's organic like search marketing. I mean, that's fantastic. Definitely. So we want to thank you for coming on with us today. And um, I hope that everybody checks out Tyler's podcast because – it is a great resource for marketing people and for libraries. And, you know, there's so much good content there and you have such great guests. So thank you for doing the podcast because it, it really brings, I think it brings a lot to library land. Um, and uh, we wanted to, um, you know, it was also interesting talking about the, you know, artificial intelligence and the, um, the mobile app versus web page discussion. So when we come back, we're going to be asking Tyler our top 10 library questions or the 032 list, which is the Dewey top number, the Dewey top number, the Dewey number for top 10 lists. <laughs> and because Tyler doesn't work in a library, we modified our questions slightly, um, but we'll still have fun with this. So uh, we always have to give credit to Melanie Cardone from the Longer Public Library for naming the list. 
and um, we will be right back. Okay. Go ahead, Bob. You're up. We are back with Tyler Byrne, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com and visit their site because they educate and inform the library land on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. So remember, we're not going to hold you to the answers, but it's just a fun list we like to ask from all our guests. So you're ready? I mean, I, I, I'm probably more nervous. Look, I'm stuttering. <laughs> I'm more nervous right now than standing in front of a thousand people campaigning. I mean, this is whew, all right. Let's do this. <laughs> okay. So, what did you want to be when you were a child? Oh, that's easy. That that one. Uh, I've always wanted to be a CEO. I've always wanted to run a big company and and do something really cool and yeah, change change the community and society for for whatever it is that we're doing. So, yeah. Wasn't it a county board member? Is that what you want to be when you were a child? No. <laughs> so what is your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? You know, that's actually high school. In high school, we moved into um, some apartments and the library was two blocks away. And so after school every day, it's, it was where I would go for homework and, and to do research and stuff. And so um, it was just kind of wandering down there and, and using that because we didn't have anything else. And it was nearby and it was, it was great. So, um, that was it. That so was it. So we may now, have to go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say my mom probably took me when I was two or something, but I don't remember that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we may have touched on this before, but, uh, when did you decide to work with libraries? It was really, uh, when our local library reached out to us, that was it. My wife reconfirmed that. Cause I mean, she's one of these people who wants to read a book every single week at minimum of the year. And so, yeah, she's either reading or listening constantly, and she's always complaining about the, the, the sites and that kind of stuff. But I mean, it was really when the library reached out to us, and we were like, "Yeah, we want to be part of what, what the library's doing. We, we believe in that mission." So that was it. That's awesome. So, what is your favorite section of the library? Oh, you skipped one, Bob. I did. Oh, who's your favorite? Oh, this is the one that he didn't want to answer. <laughs> who's your favorite fiction of the library? I tried to say. Um, Chris told me I had to answer Batman. <laughs> 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 was like, nice yeah, no. paying off the members that's great nice so you guys have a tally system over there don't you we, sh <laughs> we should we don't but we should okay so what would you be doing if you weren't working with libraries and you probably work with other companies too right yeah we work with, with a lot of other companies um actually I, yeah i'd probably be running for mayor <laughs> 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 yeah the uh the, half joking half not yeah that's actually up for election this year so but no, I just I, we I enjoy this so much, and I think we have so much bigger impact working with libraries than I could ever working in government. That this is way preferable. Yeah. 
what would your favorite section of the library be? Oh, okay. So this is going to be split. The uh, the hard part is that every library is a little different. So for me, locally at our library, um, the fact that we have a three D printer, I think is is awesome. I think that I can teach my kids how to like rapidly prototype and be just crazy creative and do see what they built or what they they've designed um, within minutes. I, that's awesome. I wish I had it as a kid. Um, if it's for me, outside of just me and my kids. Um, I love fiction and Dean Koontz and, and those books uh, or those type of books. So uh, I would fall back to, to fiction. Don't ask me to read a biography. Although Steve Jobs, I thought was pretty good. The, yeah. That was a pretty good one. Okay. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you like to see added to your local library? I like this question. I just got to tell you that. I like this question. <laughs> um, here's what I would love to see. I think about the library as a place where it's really about – freedom of information and everyone has the same playing ground and it's a level playing field where we all have access to, to getting started and doing something awesome and the information we have access to is good information i don't have to guess i don't have to go to snoops to figure out if it's real right i mean it's real it's facts it's and so what i would love to see is an innovation or an entrepreneurship center because i think that that's still kind of a core part of, of what we see as the american dream is if I can start my own business and work my own hours and have a great income and then use any of my profit to have whatever social impact I want to have on my community, whether that's rotary or donating to a nonprofit or building a hospital or, or something way bigger, um, I can do that. And I think the libraries are a great place to bring in young people or talk to the young people that you have and help them get access to that information and even help pull in those business owners in our community that can be advisors and help them move forward. But that would be a wonderful place for libraries. And that could be as big or small as you want. I think you head in that direction a little bit with 3D printers and that creative piece. But I would love to see that. I think that would be fantastic. That's a great answer. So what, what do you love about your library? Oh, that one's simple. I love the people. Hey, I've been to pretty much every one of our branches in the county except for one. Um, and it doesn't matter what branch you go to. The people are fantastic. I mean, they're, they're wonderful. They're welcoming. They make you feel good about being there, and they're always so helpful. I mean, the, I think that's the best part, at least for me. I mean, the people are fantastic. Okay, so we had to modify this question because usually it has to do with people working in libraries, but we kind of tweaked it a little bit. What's, your, what's the weirdest thing that has ever happened with you working with libraries, like weirdest request or, or something like that? You know, I've thought about this a lot, and we didn't have any weird, random things that have popped up for us based on uh, what we've done. Now, I mean, the only thing I could tell you is that first year with Whatcom County, we did the Brook Brain Challenge, and the idea was we wanted to ask people to do something crazy and then have them tag a couple friends and ask those friends to do something crazy. And so for that, we asked people to do something while you're balancing books on your head, right? Uh, it, so the people who created videos and submitted those were actually pretty entertaining. We had a, a pilot who was flying his plane, his jet, with you know three, four books on his head. That was scary, impressive. Uh, the executive or the you know the county mayor essentially he uh, he balanced the county budget, which is incredibly big on his head while playing Star Spangled Banner. Um, we had people doing like riding horses. I mean, there was all kinds of crazy things that people submitted and. That was actually a lot of fun. That, that was a lot of fun. But 
we asked for that. I haven't had anything we haven't asked for. That's weird or crazy yet. Where I got we... my fingers crossed because I see the stories. And so <laughs> I'm like, it'll be interesting. We want the videos of that, right, Chris? We could post it. Yeah, right? <laughs> that would yeah. be fun. So who would you say, uh, Tyler, is your favorite regular client or guest on the podcast? Uh, I mean, I, I love our local library. So I, I would be remiss to not say that they're my favorite client. Um because they're just great people and, and they're willing to get outside the box and they're really willing to look at the data and try new things based on what the data is that we're able to get and show them. So I think that's exciting and it's a ton of fun. So I, I, that's fantastic. Um, there are, you know, we have so many fantastic people on the show that I really have enjoyed speaking to and learning from. Um, there's two in particular that I see out there constantly doing really cool stuff. Uh, Angela Hirsch is one. I mean, she's got her blog, Every Library or uh, Library Marketing, Super Library Marketing, uh, constantly putting out great content, constantly talking about what marketing is to libraries and how to do it well. Uh, just, I think she's phenomenal. I think the world of her. And then Kim Crowder, she's the same. She's doing webinars. She's speaking. She's on podcasts. She's at events. I mean, she's really out there pushing the message and helping the industry move forward. So, um, both of those two people are, I think, aren't just great at what they're doing and thinking outside the box, but they're also great in engaging the industry and, and helping the in industry to move forward. And I have a ton of respect for them and, and love it. So, yeah. Okay. So last question, what are people without library cards missing out on? Ah, I would tell you it's a better future. The, uh, I, I think uh, maybe that speaks for itself, but if you want to improve, if you want your kids to improve, if you want your community to improve, I think that comes through intelligence. I think it comes through enlightenment. I think both of those things come through information. And so going to your library and engaging with your community, hearing what's going on in the community, participating, learning new things, and learning things that are factual and true. Um, I think that that improves your future, your kids' future, and your community's future. And, and so if you're not engaging in that, I think you're missing out on, on a better future. That's a great answer. So thanks for being such a great support and answering our list of questions. And it, this was really awesome having you on the podcast. And I'm so happy that you came on. So do you have any plugs you want to throw out there from Piola or go for it? Oh, I, I'd say I really appreciate that. The uh, I think you're only saying that because I said Batman, right? No, I mean, well, it should have been no, Batgirl. No. <laughs> <laughs> Batgirl. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. Uh, the I would say if anyone's looking – to have a better online environment or looking for information on how they could improve their their online presence for their library. Uh, we're doing a ton of cool stuff at Meet Piola. It's M-E-E-T-P-I-O-L-A.com. Head over there. I mean, we have free marketing um, packages that we, we've put together, just holistic campaigns for that you can download for free. We're doing some really cool webinars on everything from information architecture and how to improve the content flow on your site to just improving design or, or marketing strategies to the podcasts. Um, you can learn about Piola itself, but I mean, we're really trying to share as much thought leadership and as much information as possible, and you can find it all on the site. So check it out. Very cool. You want to plug the podcast too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The podcast is there. Um, but go to iTunes, check out, do a search for library figures and listen to a couple episodes. And if you want to be on the show and you have something you want to share, uh, send me an email at tyler at bpola.com because uh, I'd love to have you. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Give me some feedback and let me know what else you want to hear or what topics you're interested in. And I'll go find people to speak to those. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, you, sure. Bob. No, that, this is this has been wonderful. Thank you for coming on. Episode, yeah, this was great. Yeah, so... 
Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this edition. And if you have any questions or comments on our show, uh, visit the contact us section of our website, thelibrarypros.com. We'll also have uh, links and photos uh, from this episode uh, on the site. And visit us on Twitter at, at thelibrarypros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell a friend about us because word of mouth is how uh, our listenership grows. So remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and not those of the Sachin Public Library, the MS, MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So we will see you next time. been listening to the library pros podcast the library pros are brought to you by pippet productions and by the library pros themselves krista christofaro and bob johnson special thanks to sachin public library for providing space for this podcast until the next turn of the page i'm your announcer carlton welch